0: When you drive the brand-ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand-ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See jdpower.com slash awards for 2022 details. Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio. You're listening to Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio with your reader Anna Mercer. Our book is Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve. Chapter 33. Wine and Nibbles and the Dawn of a New Era. The Jenny Hanover was filled with memories of Anna Fang. The mark of her mouth on a dirty mug. The print of her body on the unmade bunk. A half-read book on the flight deck marked with a ribbon at page 205. In one of the lockers Hester found a chest full of money. Not just bronze coins but silver tails and gold sovereigns. More money than she or Tom had ever seen in their lives. She was rich, she whispered. Tom turned round in the pilot's seat and stared at the money. All through their long flight from Shanguo, he had not thought twice about taking the airship. He felt as if they were just borrowing her to finish a job that Miss Fang would have wanted done. Now, watching Hester lift the tinkling handfuls of coin, he felt like a thief. Well... "'said Hester, snapping the treasure chest shut. "'It's no use to her where she's gone, and no use to us, "'since I expect we'll soon be joining her there.' "'She glanced up at him. "'Unless you've changed your mind?' "'He shook his head, although the truth was "'that the anger he had felt earlier had drained away "'during his struggles to master the airship "'and steer it westwards through the fickle mountain weather. "'He was starting to feel afraid, "'and starting to remember Catherine,' and wonder what would become of her when her father was dead. But he still wanted to make Valentine pay for all the misery he had caused. He started scanning the radio frequencies for London's homing beacon, while Hester hunted through the lockers until she found what she needed, a heavy black pistol and a long, thin-bladed knife. For one night only, London's great council chamber has been decked out with lights and banners and turned into a party venue. The heads of the greater and lesser guilds mingle happily among the green leather benches and sit on the speaker's dais, chattering excitedly about the new hunting ground, glancing at their watches from time to time as the hour for firing Medusa draws closer. Apprentice engineers tack to and fro among the revellers, handing out experimental snacks prepared by Supervisor Nimmo's department. The snacks are brown and taste rather peculiar, but at least they are cut into perfectly geometrical shapes. Valentine pushes his way through the crowd until he finds Croom and his aides, a wedge of white rubber surrounded by the tall black shapes of Stalker security guards. He wants to ask the Lord Mayor what became of the agent he sent after Hester Shaw. He wades towards them, elbowing well-upholstered councillors aside and catching quick snatches of their conversation. There's Valentine. Look back from Changuem. Blew up the League's whole air fleet, so I heard. What charming snakes. Valentine, cries the Lord Mayor when the explorer finally reaches him. Just the man we've been waiting for. He sounds almost jolly. Beside him stand the geniuses who have made Medusa work again. Dr Chandra, Dr Chubb and Dr Splay, along with Dr Twix, who simpers and bobs a curtsy, congratulating Valentine on his trip to Shanguo. Behind her, the black-clad guards stand still as statues, and Valentine nods at them. "'I see you've been making good use of the old stalker parts I brought you, Croom.' "'Indeed,' agrees the Lord Mayor with a chilly smile. "'A whole new race of resurrected men. "'They will be our servants and our soldiers in the new world that we are about to build. "'Some are in action even as we speak, down at the museum.' The museum? Yes. Croome watches him slyly, gauging his reactions. Some of your historians are traitors, Valentine. Armed traitors. You mean there's fighting? But Kate's there, I must go to her. Impossible, the Lord Mayor snaps, gripping his arm as he turns to leave. Tier two is out of bounds. The museum is surrounded by stalkers and security teams. But don't worry, They have strict instructions not to harm your daughter. She will be brought up to join us as soon as possible. I particularly want her to watch Medusa in action. And I want you here too, Valentine. Stay. Valentine stares at him past the frozen faces of the other party-goers in the sudden silence. Where does your real loyalty lie, I wonder? muses Croom. With London? Or with your daughter? Stay. Stay, as if he's a dog. Valentine's hand curls for a moment on his sword hilt, but he knows he will not draw it. The truth is that he is afraid, and all his adventures and expeditions have only been attempts to hide himself from this truth. He is a coward. He stretches a smile across his trembling face and bows. Your obedient servant, Lord Mayor. There was a door in the wall near natural history. A door that Catherine must have passed hundreds of times without even seeing it. Now as Pomeroy unlocked it and heaved it open, they heard the strange echoing moan of wind in a long shaft mingled with the rumble of the city's engines. He handed Beavis the key and a torch. Good luck, Mr Pod. Kate, good luck. From somewhere behind him came a great dull boom that set the glass rattling in the display cases. They're here, said Pomeroy. I'm needed at my post. Come with us, Catherine begged him. You'll be safer on top tier among the crowds. This is my museum, Miss Valentine, he reminded her, and this is where I'll stay. I'd only get in your way up there. She hugged him, pressing her face into his robe and savouring its smell of mothballs and pipe tobacco. ''Your poor museum.'' Pomeroy shrugged. ''I don't think the engineers would have let us keep hold of our relics much longer. At least this way we'll go down fighting.'' ''And and you might win.'' ''Oh, yes.'' The old historian gave a rueful chuckle. ''We used to thrash them regularly in the Inter Guild Football Cup, you know. Of course, they didn't have machine guns and stalkers to help them.'' He lifted her face and looked into her eyes. ''Very serious.'' Stop them, Catherine. Stick a spanner in the works. I'll try, she promised. We'll meet again soon, said Pomeroy firmly, hefting his blunderbuss as he turned away. You've got your father's gift, Kate. People follow you. Look at the way you stirred us up. They heard the cannon roar again as he closed the door on them, and then the clatter of small arms, closer now and tangled with faint screams. "'There!' said Tom. "'They were flying high through thin drifts of cloud, "'and he was looking down at London, far ahead. "'There!' "'It was bigger than he remembered, and much uglier. "'Strange how, when he lived there, "'he had believed everything the Goggles Greens told him "'about the city's elegant lines, its perfect beauty. "'Now he saw that it was ugly, "'no better than any other town, just bigger. "'A storm front of smoke and belching chimneys.' a wave of darkness rolling towards the mountains with the white villas of high London surfing on its crest like some delicate ship. It didn't look like home. There, he said again. I see it, said Hester beside him. Something's going on on top tier. It's lit up like a fairground. Tom, that's where Valentine will be. They must be getting ready to use Medusa. Tom nodded. Feeling guilty at the mention of Medusa, he knew that if Miss Fang were here, she would be coming up with a plan to stop the ancient weapon. But he did not see what he could do about it. It was too big, too terrible, too hard to think about. Better to concentrate on what mattered to him and Hester and let the rest of the world look after itself. He's down there, whispered the girl. I can feel him. Tom didn't want to go too close, in case the Lord Mayor had set men to watch the skies or sent up a screen of spotter ships. He tugged on the controls and felt the big, slow movement as the airship responded. She rose, and London faded to a smudge of speeding light beneath the cloud as he steered her southward and began to circle round. They climbed out of darkness into darkness, Beavis Pod's torch flittering on stair, after identical metal stare. Their big shadows slid up the walls of the shaft. They didn't speak much, but each listened to the other's steady breathing, glad of the company. Catherine kept looking back, expecting to see Dog at her heels. Five hundred steps, whispered Beavis, stopping on a narrow landing and shining his torch upward. The stairs spiralled up forever. This must be Tier One, halfway. Catherine nodded, too out of breath to speak, too on edge to rest. Above them, the Lord Mayor's reception must be in full swing. She climbed on, her knees growing stiff, each intake of breath a cold, hard ache in the back of her throat, the too-heavy satchel banging against her hip. Through the windows of the airship, Hester could see the outcountry streaming past, only a hundred or so feet below, scarred with the same ruler-straight trenches that she and Tom had stumbled along on the days after they first met. And there was London, red tail lights in the darkness, dimming as Tom brought the airship up into the thick, poison fog of the city's exhaust. He was good at this, she realised, and thought what a pity it was that his plan was not going to work. The radio crackled into life. London Docks and Harbour Board, demanding their identity codes. Tom looked back at her scared but she knew how to handle this. She went to the radio and flipped the transmit switch up and down quickly garbling her message as if the communications system was shot. London Airship G47 she said remembering the code name that had come crackling over the inn's loudspeakers in Airhaven all those weeks before. We're taking Shrike back to the engineerium. The radio said something, but she snapped it off. Black smog pressed against the windows, and water droplets condensed on the glass and went quivering off this way and that, leaving wriggly trails. "'I'll circle the city for 20 minutes and then come in and pick you up,' Tom was saying. "'That should give you time to find Valentine, and... "'I'll be dead in 20 minutes, Tom,' she said. "'Just get yourself safe away. Forget about me.' "'I'll circle back.' I'll be dead. I'll circle back anyway. There's no point, Tom. I'll circle back and pick you up. She looked at him and saw tears shining in his eyes. He was crying. He was crying for her because she was going into danger and he would not see her again. And she thought it was strange that he cared about her that much and very sweet. She said, Tom, I wish. And Tom, if I and other little broken bits of sentences that petered out in silence because she didn't even know herself what she was trying to say, only that she wanted him to know that he was the best thing that had happened to her. A light loomed out of the swirling dark, then another. They were rising past Tier 3 and very close. Tier 2 slid by, with people staring up from an observation deck, and then circle park with lanterns strung between the trees. Tom fumbled with the controls and the Jenny went powering forward, low over the rooftops of Knightsbridge and up towards the aft edge of Top Tier. He glanced quickly at Hester. She wanted to hug him, kiss him, something, but there was no time now and she just gasped, Tom, don't get yourself killed, slammed the hatch controls to open and ran to it and jumped as the airship swung in a shuddery arc over the rim of Top Tier. She hit the deck plate hard and rolled over and over. The Jenny Hanover was pulling away fast, lit by the sparkling trails of rockets from an air defence battery on the engineerium. The rockets missed. Darkness swallowed the airship, and she was alone, scrambling into the shadows. A single airship, Lord Mayor? It is a nervous-looking engineer, a shell-like radio clipped to his ear. It is pulled clear, but we believe it may have landed a boarding party. Anti-tractionists on top tier... The Lord Mayor nods, as as if this is the sort of little problem that crops up every day. Well, well. Dr Twix, I think this might be a good opportunity to test your new models. Oh, goody, trills the woman, dropping a plate of canapes in her excitement. Come along, my chicks, come along. Her stalkers turn with a single movement and form up behind her, striding through thrilled party-goers to the exits. ''Bring me the boarders alive,'' Croom calls after her. ''It would be a pity if they missed the big event.'' Chapter 34 Idea for a Fireworks Display Tom wiped at his eyes with the heel of one hand and concentrated on his flying, steering the Jenny away from London and up. He wasn't frightened, now. It felt good to be doing something at last and good to be in charge of this huge, wonderful machine.'' He turned her eastwards, pointing her nose towards the last faint gleam of day on the summit of Jeanne Shan. He would circle for 20 minutes. It felt as if half that time had passed already, but when he checked the chronometers he saw that it was less than two minutes since Hester jumped down into London and... A rushing, brilliant thing slammed into the gondola and the blast plucked him out of his seat. He clung to a stanchion and saw papers and instrument panels and sputtering lengths of cable and the shrine with its photographs and ribbons and Miss Fang's half-read book all rushing out through a jagged hole in the fuselage, tumbling into the sky like ungainly birds. The big windows shattered and the air turned sharp and shimmery with flying glass. He craned his neck, peering up through the empty windows, trying to see if the envelope was burning. There were no flames, but overhead a great dark shape slid past, moonlight slithering along its armoured envelope. It was the 13th floor elevator, pulling past the jenny and performing a lazy victory roll far over the foothills of Shangguo, before it came sweeping back to finish him. Magnus Croom watches his guests crowd out into the square, glazing up at the glare and flicker of the battle taking place above the clouds. He checks his wristwatch. Dr Chandra, Dr Chubb, Dr Splay, it is time to deploy Medusa. Valentine, come with us. I'm sure you are keen to see what we've made of your machine. Croom, says the explorer, blocking his path. There is something I must say. The Lord Mayor raises an eyebrow, intrigued. Valentine hesitates. He has been planning this speech all evening, knowing that it is what Catherine would want him to say. Now, faced with the Lord Mayor's arctic eyes, he falters, stammering a moment. Is it worth it, Croom?" he says at last. Destroying the Shield Wall will not destroy the League. There will be other strongholds to defeat, hundreds of fortresses, thousands of lives. Is it really worth so much, your new hunting ground? There is a ripple of amazement among the bystanders. Croom says calmly, You have left it rather late to have doubts, Valentine. You worry too much. Dr. Twix can build whole armies of stalkers, more than enough to crush any resistance from anti tractionist savages. He starts to push past, but Valentine is in front of him again. Think, Lord Mayor, how long will a new hunting ground support us? A thousand years? Two thousand? One day there will be no more prey left anywhere and London will have to stop moving. Perhaps we should accept it. Stop now, before any more innocent people are killed. Take what you have learned from Medusa and use it for peaceful purposes. Croom smiles. Do you really think I am so short-sighted? he asks. The Guild of Engineers plans further ahead than you suspect. London will never stop moving. Movement is life. When we have devoured the last wandering city and demolished the last static settlement, we will begin digging. We will build great engines powered by the heat of the Earth's core and steer our planet from its orbit. We will devour Mars, Venus and the asteroids. We shall devour the sun itself and then sail on across the gulf of space. A million years from now, our city will still be travelling, no longer hunting towns to eat, but whole new worlds. Valentine follows him to the door and out across the square towards St Paul's. Catherine is right, he keeps thinking. He's as mad as a spoon. Why didn't I put a stop to his schemes when I had the chance? Above the clouds, the rockets flare and bang, and the light of an exploding airship washes across the upturned faces of the crowd, who murmur, Ooh! And Hester Shaw crouches at the tier's edge as the resurrected men stalk by, green eyes sweeping the walls and deck plates steel claws, unsheathed and twitching. The cat's creep ended in a small circular chamber with stencilled numbers on the sweaty walls and a single metal door. Beavis slipped the key into the lock and Catherine heard it turn. A crack of light appeared around the door's edge and she heard voices outside, a long, tremulous, "'Oh!' "'We're in an alley off Paternoster Square,' Beavis said." I wonder why they sound so excited. Catherine pulled out her watch and held it in the thin sliver of light from the door. Ten to nine, she said. They're waiting for Medusa. He hugged her one last time and whispered quickly, shyly, I love you. Then he pushed her past him through the door and stepped out after her, trying to look like her captor, not her friend, and wondering if any other engineer had ever said what he had just said, or felt the way he felt when he was with Catherine. Tom scrambled through the debris and the listing wreck of the Jenny's gondola. The lights were out, and blood was streaming into his eyes from a cut on his forehead, blinding him. The pain of his broken ribs washed through him in sick, giddy waves, and all he wanted to do was lie down and close his eyes and rest, but he knew he mustn't. He fumbled for the rocket controls, praying to all the gods he had ever heard of that they had not been blown away. And sure enough, at the flick of the right switch, a viewing scope rose out of the main instrument panel, and he wiped his eyes and saw the dim, upside-down ghost of the 13th-floor elevator framed in the crosshairs, growing bigger every minute. He heaved as hard as he could on the firing controls and felt the deck shift under him as the rockets went shrieking out of their nests beneath the gondola. Dazzling light blossomed as they hit their target, but when he blinked the bright after-images away and peered out, the black airship was still there, and he realised that he had barely dented the great armoured envelope and that he was going to die. But he had bought himself a few more moments, at least, for the elevator's starboard rocket projectors were damaged and she was pulling past him and turning to bring her porter ray to bear. He tried to calm himself. He tried to think of Catherine so that the memory of her would be what he took down with him to the sunless country. But it was a long time since he had dreamed of her and he couldn't really remember what she looked like anymore. The only face that he could call to mind was Hester's and so he thought of her and the things that they had gone through together and how it had felt to hold her on the shield wall last night, the smell of her hair and the warmth of her stiff, bony body through the ragged coat. And from some corner of his memory came the echo of the League rockets that had battered at the 13th floor elevator as she banked away from Batmunk Gomper, the thick crump of the explosions and the small, bright, prickling noise of broken glass. Her envelope was armoured but the windows could be broken. He lurched back to the rocket controls and retargeted them so that the crosshairs on the little screens were centred not on the elevator's looming gas bags, but on her windows. The gauge beside the viewscope told him he had three rockets left, and he fired them all together, the shattered gondolas shivering and groaning as they sprang away towards their target. For a fraction of a second, he saw Pusey and Gensch on their flight deck, staring at him, faces wide with silent terror. Then they vanished into brightness as the rockets tore in through their viewing windows and their gondola filled with fire. "'A geezer of flame went tearing up the companion ladders "'between the gas bags and blew out the top of the envelope. "'By the time Tom could see again, "'the huge wreck was veering away from him, "'fire in her ruined gondola and the hatches of her hold, "'fire flapping from her steering vanes, "'fire unravelling from shattered engine pods, "'fire lapping inside her envelope "'until it looked like a vast Chinese lantern "'tumbling down towards the lights of London.'" Catherine stepped out of the alley's mouth into a running crowd, people all around her looking up, some still clutching drinks and nibbles, their eyes and mouths wide open. She looked at St Paul's. The dome had not yet opened, so it couldn't be that that they were staring at. And what was this light, this swelling orange glow that outshone the argon lamps and made the shadows dance? At that moment, the blazing wreckage of an airship came barrelling out of the sky and crashed against the facade of the engineerium in a storm of fire and glass and outflung scythes of blackened metal. A whole engine broke free of the wreck and came cartwheeling across the square towards her, red hot and spl- spraying, blazing fuel. Beavis pushed her aside and down. She saw him standing over her, his mouth open, shouting something, and saw a blue eye on the blistered engine cowling as it tore him away. A whirl of limbs, a flap of a torn white coat, his scream lost in the bellow of twisting metal as the wreckage smashed against the top-tier elevator station. A blue eye on the cowling. She knew it should mean something, but she could not think what. She stood up slowly, shaking. There were small fires on the deck all round her, and one great fire in the engineerium that cast Halloween light across the whole tier. She stumbled to where the blazing engine lay, its huge propeller blades jutting out of the deck plate like megaliths. Raising her hand to shield her face against the belching heat, she looked for Beavis. He was lying broken in a steep angle of the debris, twisted in such impossible ways that Catherine knew at once there was no point even calling out his name. The flames were rising, making his coat bubble and drip like melting cheese, heat pressing against her face, turning her tears to puffs of steam, driving her backwards over wreckage and bodies, and pieces of bodies. Miss Catherine? A blue eye on the engine cowling, She could still see the outline, the paint peeling under the tongues of the fire. Father's ship. Miss Catherine? She turned and found one of the men from the elevator station standing with her, trying to be kind. He took her by the arm and led her gently away, gesturing towards the main part of the wreck, the scorching firestorm in the engineerium. He wasn't in it, miss. She stared at his smile. She didn't understand. Of course he had been in it. She had seen him there. His dead, gaping face and the flames rising around him. Beavis, whom she had led here, who had loved her. What was there to smile about? But the man kept smiling. He wasn't aboard, miss. Your dad, I mean. I saw him not five minutes ago. Going into St Paul's with the Lord Mayor. She felt the sinister weight of the satchel still hanging from her shoulder and remembered that she had a job to do. Come on, miss, said the man. You've had a nasty shock. Come and sit down and have a nice cup of tea. No, she said. I have to find my father. She left him there and turned away, stumbling across the square through panicked crowds in smoke-stained robes and party frocks, through the long, shivering bray of silence to St Paul's. Hester was darting towards the guild hall when the explosion lifted her off her feet and flung her out of the shadows and into the harsh spill of light from the blazing engineerium. She rolled over and over on the quaking deck plate, stunned, her pistol skittering away, her veil torn off. There was a moment of silence, then noises came crowding in, screams, sirens. She shuffled through her memories of the moments before the blast, trying to put them in some sort of order. That light above the rooftops... That burning thing sliding down the sky had been an airship. The Jenny Hanover. Tom, she said, whispering his name to the hot pavement and felt smaller and more alone than ever before. She pushed herself up on all fours. Nearby, one of the new stalkers had been caught by the blast and cut in half and its legs were stamping aimlessly about and bumping into things. The shawl that Tom had given her blew past... She caught it, knotted it around her neck, and turned to look for the fallen gun, only to find another squad of stalkers quite unharmed closing in upon her from behind. Their claws were fire-coloured slashes in the darkness, and firelight lit their long, dead faces, and she realised, with a hollow stab of disappointment, that this was the end of her. And above the black silhouetted rooftops of the Guild Hall, beyond the smoke and the dancing sparks, the dome of Saint Paul's was starting to open. Bedtime stories on 1707 Radio. Mary redeemed a fifty thousand dollar cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino was America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life changing cash prizes.